and welcome to The Bunker Daily. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of the forthcoming book, How to Be a Liberal. And speaking to me today is a man who has spent more than anyone should have to spend listening to me go over the arguments for that book and telling me if I'm talking dog shit. Uh, Toby Buckle is the host of the Political Philosophy Podcast, where he goes deep into liberal theory and political philosophy with philosophers and public figures. I just said the word philosophy three times in one sentence. Hello, Toby. How are you? I'm great, Ian. Thanks for having me on. No, not at all. Not at all. It's good to see you. How's, um, how's, you're in New York. Um, yes. It's not looking fantastic over here, how things are going over there. How is it when you're actually sort of in the middle of it? Um, so New York, I mean, who knows where we'll be, you know, tomorrow when this goes out. Um, New York was just the hotspot of the nation, maybe the world. It has fallen quite a lot recently, at least in terms of like the daily death measures that we're all unfortunately tracking. Um, So comparatively good news in New York, although it looks like the rest of the country is not seeing those sorts of declines. Um, So I feel safer now than I did three weeks ago, but maybe not fully safe is about where we're at, I think. And the sort of like the attitude, I mean, New York's one of those places that I associate with the word attitude, like you sort of feel it like as soon as you arrive, you feel that kind of New York. I mean, how, has that been particularly impacted by it? Or does it does it all feel like New York is dealing with it in a very New York way? I think we're dealing with it. I think by and large, um, Americans have actually responded quite well to this. And when you see people who've been um, very adverse to the stay-at-home orders and stuff. That tends to be more in, like, middle-of-the-country red states. I think everyone understands a national emergency when they see one. And even the sorts of protests we've seen are quite a fringe thing. I don't think they represent full public opinion. And to some degree, they're kind of astroturfed. They're financed by um, big corporate interests that want to reopen. So actually, no, by and large, I think... New Yorkers and Americans in general have sort of understood this and, you know, with a few exceptions, generally complied. Hmm, okay. Um, I presume you sort of have, I mean, you keep your ear to what's going on in the UK um, while living there. I mean, how, how would you describe the, the difference in the politics of how this has played out, if any? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think, you know, I never put myself up as like some sort of expert on the virus. I know nothing about science. So I'll just say for like the political response, right? And as the political response goes, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say both of those governments have handled it pretty badly, essentially, right? I guess the first big difference to say, though, is that America is a federal republic and the UK isn't. And so the failings at the federal level, which are pretty manifest in America, have to some degree been compensated by successes. Governors, mayors in America are very, very empowered. And we've seen some states handle it really well, and some states handle it quite badly. But there is no equivalent sort of mid-level governance structures in the UK. So and it may be something like the Scottish Parliament, but even then, the failings at the national level, there's nothing to counteract them. So that would be, like, the first difference. And then the other difference is it seems like, in spite of them both doing quite objectively poorly, um, Johnson has seen quite a big bump in his approval ratings, whereas I think it's pretty unequivocal at this point that Trump has been politically damaged by this. Is is there much peeling away from his sort of previous supporters on the right? 
Um, not a huge amount. Um, I think the bottom line, though, is that there doesn't need to be. He's maintained a flaw of, depending on exactly which poll you look at, somewhere between 41 and 43% approval, something like that. Um, and I think we have to accept there is some tens of millions of people who will never leave him, but that's fine. We don't need them. So Joe Biden right now is ahead by about eight to 10 points nationally, and he's ahead by big chunks in all the swing states. Now, that may not last, but if the election was held today, Biden would almost certainly win it. Okay, that's interesting. And I'm not going to have to go through that thing I went through in the last election where everyone told me that right until the day that it happened. And then I had that night of traumatic horror watching the precise opposite take place. In um, in America, the 2016 election. Um, mm. Well, here's, here's the difference, right? Is um, the confidence people had that Hillary Clinton would win wasn't based on the empirical evidence we had vis-a-vis um, national lean polling, stuff like that. It was based on just sort of an incredulity on the part of liberal journalists that someone like Trump could ever be elected. Um, so if you look at the polling, so for a lot of that campaign, Hillary was quite a long way ahead, but on election day, she had a 2 to 3% lead in the national polling, which was actually about what happened in the popular vote. And then the swing state polling was a bit out, but like out by like four points or so. It, mm-hmm. You know, to put it another way, I would expect someone two to three points ahead in the polls, which Hillary was, to win the election two times out of three. And, you know, if you run the experiment of the universe three times, maybe Trump, you know, we're just living in the reality where we got unlucky, <laughs> right? Um, someone who's eight to 10% in, ahead in the polls, as Biden is now, he may not be on election day, but he mm-hmm. is now, I would expect that person to win 19 times out of 20, at least. Mm. So, mm. you know, I would always just say, like, look at the evidence, and there's a lot of different bits of data you can draw from there. Don't look at your intuitions, because what you find plausible as a candidate isn't what another person in another part of the country in a different sort of cultural makeup might find plausible. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to, to a certain extent, lump Boris Johnson and Donald Trump together, or at yeah. least put them under the sort of banner of, you know, the new populism. Um, what, what do you think we've learned about what makes them similar and what makes them different by, by, by the last sort of couple of months? Yeah, I think they're quite different as people, actually. And this is a personality read, and it's just my judgment, so mm-hmm. who knows. I think um, Boris is much more adaptable. He's much more able to change himself to new circumstances, and that's worked well for him in this crisis. He, you know, from his initial herd immunity thing, he's switched tracks, and it looks like he's switching tracks again. I also think, and it's an odd thing to say about Trump, but I think he's more principled in a lot of ways. He doesn't have, oh, wow. he doesn't have good principles, but I think there is a streak within him which is politically authoritarian. I think mm. there's a streak within him which is strongly racist and um, xenophobic and quite nativist. And I think those are all sort of genuine enough, and... Don't get me wrong, Trump lies about like Trump lies about the number of flaws his buildings have. You know what I mean? He's he's pathological with it. Um but he seems genuinely unable to pivot away from those sorts of appeals to racial, religious, national identity when they're no longer serving him. I feel mm-hmm. for Johnson it's much more cynically employed. Johnson strikes me as almost completely amoral, actually, in a lot of ways. Mm. 
And I think for Johnson, it really is about seizing and holding power. I think Trump's much more of a one-trick pony. And I think Trump has a standard move he does, and he's done through all his business career and all his political career, where he gets into something to make a quick buck, it goes wrong, and he shifts the blame onto others and gets out of it. Um, and that's something he's doing throughout his political career. He's thrown any number of ca- his cabinet and supporters under the bus. And it's like he's finally run into a situation where you just can't do that anymore. And you need a sort of long-term framing and narrative and strategy. And I think Johnson's grasped the need for the long-term framing part, at least. And Trump simply hasn't. He just says a different thing each day, and it's, mm-hmm. it's not serving him politically. Mm-hmm. This debate that uh, they certainly have in the US and and that you have here too, um, which is framed as a sort of liberal or usually they say libertarian sort of versus authoritarian debate over lockdown. Yes. Um, Do you think that actually is a liberal versus authoritarian debate or is, is this a category problem that we're having in the way that we think about it? Well, labels can mean any number of things to different people, but I would broadly say no to that question. So, um, so I think one of my big things is when you really get down to it, um, politics isn't about policies, or it's not merely about policies. It's about disagreement over the meaning of words. And so if you take this case, you have this particular value, uh, freedom or liberty, right, uh, which is asserted at the core of um, libertarian arguments here. And they are appealing to a conception of liberty, but I don't think it's the liberal or even the libertarian one. Let me cash out what I mean by that. Is a lockdown a restraint on your freedom? Well, in one sense it is, insofar as anything that constrains your action is a restraint on your freedom. The problem with that is, like, having laws against murder are a constraint on your freedom in that sense. But if we legalised murder, your freedom would still be constrained because people might murder you, right? If they're appealing to freedom, but they're not appealing to uh, classically liberal freedom, and they're not appealing to a sort of democratic freedom... Um, what are what what conception of freedom are they appealing to? And then you have to bring in this variable that colours all of American politics, which is race. Because the people that we're talking about are very pro-political authoritarianism when it comes to the criminal justice system. They're very anti-democratic freedom when it comes to all sorts of reforms that the government might want to do. Um, but they are nuts that they can't go out and get a haircut. So what's this about? I'll give you one quick example. Um, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, just this morning said something very illuminating. He said, we are never going to jail a small business owner for opening up in in a lockdown. And he said, jails are for criminals, not small business owners. Now, that's so illuminating because if a small business owner is breaking the law, they're by definition a criminal, right? Now, you can argue whether jail is an appropriate, you know, measure for that, right? Um, But here's the thing. In American political discourse, all of the basic categories and concepts that we use are racialized. So small business owner is very heavily coded as white. Criminal is very heavily coded as black. So the essential idea is 
coercive state power is for black people and not for white people. And that's actually an ideal of freedom which has a lot of history as well, and we don't talk about it as much because it's uncomfortable, but the idea is freedom not as the dismantling of hierarchies of domination, but freedom as the maintaining of one's own place within them, and freedom as the ability to always have someone under you who you can exercise domination over. And that's an ideal of freedom that goes back to ancient Greece and Rome, who developed the idea of freedom precisely because they were large-scale slave societies. It's an ideal of freedom that was very prevalent at the founding of the Republic in America, and it's an ideal of freedom that I think runs through and vitiates our discourse to this day, which is the ideal of freedom as a a certain um, ethnic or racial group being coercively protected from and being able to be in a position of domination over another. And that is a coherent conception of freedom. It's a conception of freedom that is older than the liberal and the democratic theory. And it's one that I think we need to be explicit about exposing and opposing. You mentioned that the start of sort of America, I guess you're thinking about sort of Declaration of Independence and and the Constitution. Um, and usually it's that, that moment's treated as, you know, here are all these liberal principles being put forward, but there was the stain of, of slavery. But the way that you just suggested it there is actually that it's more pernicious than that, that the slave of stainery was a core part of why some of those principles were being adopted at the time. Yes. So let's be clear, first of all, liberalism historically has always been able to incorporate racism Hmm. within it, right? That doesn't mean liberalism has to be racist, but you'd be blind to look at history (laughs) and say that liberals (laughs) everywhere and all times have been diametrically opposed to racism, right? Indeed, the sort of you know, modern anti-racist liberals are kind of a new development, a good one. Now, with regards to your question at the founding of America, let's just go to concepts here. Slavery and freedom are antonyms. They're definitionally in opposition to each other. And I think um, it's been argued fairly convincingly um, by the great historical sociologist Orlando Patterson that freedom, it's not like, oh, we had this wonderful ideal and it was sort of a side constraint. It is the presence of slavery that precisely enables the creation of freedom as a social value. So to put it succinctly, who are the people who first got the idea into their head that freedom was a desirable thing? Slaves and people living in proximity to slaves. And you see that throughout history. Societies that do not have large-scale slave economies do not develop ideals of freedom. So the ancient Near East, China, do not have ideals of freedom. Not they, they, it's desi- they, they understand it's desirable to, you know, be left alone, but, you know, they would never say the purpose of our society is to be mm. free in the same way as we understand it's desirable not to be homeless, but we would never say the purpose of our society is not mm. to be homeless. Um, Greece and Rome were innovative in just how heavily their economies relied on slave labour, and through a, a fairly complex series of historical innovations, freedom was created as a social value. And in the sort of early modern world, we see that again. Societies that are heavily structurally dependent on slavery, as the US was, tend to be uniquely obsessed with the idea of freedom. The people who are most alive to the possibilities of freedom as a socially invigorating force are the very people 
who are in the business of denying it to others. You you said that um, the the race issue basically permeates everything in American politics, in in a way that I I mean I presume you don't think that it does it in the UK, for instance, or not as not as heavily. I would say it's not as if there's not racism there, but it's not. It's it's arguably the foundational divide in America in American history. The same probably isn't. And true is that, that just um, basically just a consequence of the fact that slavery was not existing within the territory, or is it something deeper than that in in the political development? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I'm not an American historian. Um, I'll give you a few quick thoughts, but these are just off the cuff. I think. Um, Yes, within the territory, and there was a large population of um, what sociologists of slavery refer to as the internal enemy. Democracy states always define themselves in terms of opposition to both internal and external enemies. Um, I think when we come to um, modern American political history, um, concerns about race were seized upon and incorporated by um, our political parties in a way that simply didn't happen in European democracies. European democracies have tended to marginalise um, the National Front or stuff like that, right? They've tended to exclude them from um, mainstream political discourse, whereas in America, um, you had a situation where with the Civil Rights Act, the Republican Party made an aggressive effort um, not to incorporate those votes, because those votes were already going to the Democratic Party. Um, so the Democratic Party used to be the party of um, Jim Crow, and you know Jim Crow Democrats would give their support to the National Party in exchange for maintaining a form of uh, political authoritarianism in their own states. Um, and through what gets called the Southern Strategy, which lasted many decades, the Republican Party made an aggressive bid to win over those votes, which it effectively did. And it did so um, by using concepts like states' rights, like criminality, like demonising welfare recipients, um, in a way of codedly appealing to those votes without using a language that would be overtly off-putting to, say, a non-racist white New Englander. And so what's happened as a result of that process is all of our political language, I mean, it was racialized to begin with, but it's continued to be racialized. And what's happened in modern American politics is there does tend to be a drift in modern societies that they slowly become less racist over time. What's happened because the Republican Party is structurally dependent on those votes is it's not just that it's used racism, it's perpetuated it. It needs to keep its voters in a state of heightened racial fear. And you can see that going back to the Willie Horton ad that uh, Bush ran. You can see it explicitly in Trump's campaigns that, you know, we are under threat from cartels in Mexico. We are under threat from inner city violence, again, a coded anti-black message, right? And if you, you know, there is a strong feeling in America among a lot of white conservatives, and I've talked to a lot of them, and the feeling's genuine, that white people are being replaced. Um, now, it's not real, it's not really happening, but they feel that it's real, and they feel that it's real because they've been told to feel that it's real. And, okay, so that's a very short-potted history, but I think it actually might be much more in our modern history and the way parties have gone after votes and maintained electoral coalitions. And obviously, of course, slavery and everything else in the past. But I think that's sort of the short story 
of why race is such a dominant divide in this country. Um, we spoke the other day about um, the issue of the sort of lockdown, freedom or not. And one of the things that came up was just this idea of, well, actually, what, I wonder if the division is between trust and sort of, especially trust in institutions. Because you, otherwise, it's quite hard to explain over here why people are reacting. I mean, you know, you've got guys that have been saying for the last three years over Brexit, it's okay to do a bit of economic damage if that's, you know, the requirement of this project. And now suddenly it's, well, it's not okay to do economic damage if it means, you know, that, that it's only there to save a few old people. I mean, trust seems to be the only thing that could explain it. Do you think there's anything in that? Or, or am I looking at the wrong variable? <sighs> Trust in institutions, I'd add another variable to it, which is trust in institutions to do specific mm. things. Do we trust the government to have a nationalising project? Do we trust the government to, as I was giving in the American case, and I'm using big scare quotes here, police inner <laughs> cities, right? Do we, so do we trust the government to do nationalising projects? Do we trust the government to repress the people at the bottom of the social mm. hierarchy? Yes, actually, these people tend to trust the government to do those things. Do we trust the government to aid the people at the bottom of the social hierarchy? No, we don't. Do, well, not us, but mm -hmm. you know, these people. Do we trust the government to regulate and constrain the people at the top of the social hierarchy? No, we don't, right? And so I think... At the heart of it, there's a few ideas. Um, one is hierarchies. My suspicion the hierarchy in the UK we're talking about would more relate to class mm. than race, um, although both are present in both countries. It's also a belief in um, the inability of governments to change the fundamental social structure, the inability of governments to rejig or dismantle or progress from these social hierarchies. Um, I think what's a common thread throughout conservatism in all its many manifestations, from the libertarian to the racist to the reactionary, is an idea that there's some social structures that we simply cannot change, and to do so will always pr produce adverse consequences. Those social structures could be the laws of the free market, they could be a system of racial or class domination. If you want to go back far enough, they could be the laws of God. But the idea that there is what the ideological theorist Michael Frieden calls extra human constraints on the social structure. I think that's the through line. And it's it's a distrust of government to try and change those constraints. Okay, I've got to finish up, but I, I have to ask you two questions and I suspect you're gonna hate both of them. When you answer this, I don't want you to think about the philosophy itself. I want you to think in the most superficial way that you yourself are capable of <laughs> about the personality. Who would be the okay. liberal philosopher that you would choose to spend lockdown with? I'm going to say Mel. Um, oh, shit. And, uh, wow. Because that's going to get demanding. <laughs> yes, but Mel, Mel was also had a sort of fun and silly side to him as well, which and a sense of humour, which I think people underappreciate in those writings. And yes, you would be in for some engaged conversations <laughs> there. Um, but there's also an element in Mill about, like, personality and autonomy and, like, being different and being foolish and being silly, which mm. I, I quite like. Um, if, if you allow me a non-liberal Machiavelli, apparently huh. he was just a blast to be around huh. Um, huh. and a real sort of party guy <laughs> and practical jokester and all that. <laughs> you know, that actually does not surprise me. I can kind of imagine that. Yeah. Um, okay, well, the second one is, you must be able to see it coming, is 
what's the liberal philosopher? Who's the liberal philosopher you would least like to spend lockdown with? Oh, Christ. <sighs> if we can go back far enough, um, maybe Locke, who seems like a complete prat. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't seem like a lot of fun. I think that's fair enough. Also, I always get the read of Locke as like not particularly smart. Like, it's not. It's, this isn't like Hobbes or something. It's not sophisticated philosophy. It's like, I read the Bible. I have divined this thing from it. I will now apply it in a weird, confusing way where I don't define any terms, and people are going to, because it's become so influential, people are going to spend four centuries going, so what did Locke mean by this? And he's, these philosophical, what did this thinker mean by this? And I'm pretty sure if you asked them, they'd say what all of us say when you ask them, what do you mean by freedom? They say, I don't fucking know, you know? <laughs> I find that, given the way I've spent my last two years of my life, I find that an oddly reassuring thought. Um, Toby, thank you so much for talking to me today. Good luck over there. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. This has been another uh, Bunker Daily. We will be back next week uh, with more of these and more of the main show. Um, have a good weekend and stay safe. Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.